Hello everybody, my name is Sheila Ramjuk and I am part of the ERS Monograph Editorial Board as their Early Career Member Representative. I'm currently a pulmonologist working in the Manchester region in the UK. Following the success of the previous Monograph podcast, we are recording a fourth relating to the ERS Monograph entitled Occupational and Environmental Lung Disease. We are privileged to be joined by two of the contributors, Dr. Johanna Ferry a well-known academic consultant based at the Brompton and Imperial College with a ridiculous knowledge base in occupational asthma. Dr. Ferry with the NIHR has conducted research in laboratory animal allergy and is currently undertaking research into the etiology of hypersensitivity pneumonitis, and I definitely look forward to the results of those. And Professor Mohamed Jibe, the Head of Occupational Medicine at the University of Cape Town, who essentially is a rock star in the field of occupational allergy and asthma and whose work includes allergy and fish processing workers. And also many of you will remember that Professor Jibe was an integral part of obtaining a huge settlement for those gold miners affected by silicosis in South Africa. So welcome and thank you again for joining us. Thank you. The first question I'd like to ask is what prompted this monograph on occupational and environmental lung disease? Thank you, Sheila. So the monographs are a compact guide to an area of respiratory medicine. Um, and certainly my experience is that there's very little teaching on occupational and environmental lung disease, both at medical school and in higher training. And occupation is really important and it's something I feel quite passionately about. And I think it can be relevant in most fields um, and subspecialties within respiratory medicine. All respiratory physicians should be aware of the spectrum of diseases that can be caused by exposures in the workplace. Um, and so we were approached to see if we could write this, uh, this monograph and hope that it provides a good foundation to build on existing knowledge and also that's in a really enjoyable and informative read. I have to say it certainly is that for reading some of the chapters, I have really enjoyed it. So thank you. And out of curiosity, why the personal interest? What is it due to specific experiences you've had? And how has the world of work changed and why both of you enjoy working in this field? I think uh, one of the important aspects is that the lungs are a fascinating organ of the body and actually in very close contact to the airborne environment. And in our kind of setting, where a large number of mine workers have been exposed to injurious dusts causing silicosis, asbestosis, TB, and a lot. This obviously drives home a very important aspect of medicine, which is to do with the occupational and environmental contaminants of work and the world of work. So I'm fascinated by this because it allows me to use both my clinical skills as well as my public health skills in terms of protecting and promoting the health of workers. The world of work has obviously changed quite a bit in the last century. There is increasing for informalization of work, there is deregulation of work, there is increased participation of women in, in the workforce, and there's major sectoral uh, transformations happening with the decline of the mining industry and uh, rise of the manufacturing and processing industry. And this all results in introducing various other hazards that uh, workers are exposed to and result in um, occupational lung diseases of various sorts. 
So what do you think, Joe? What has been your interest? I would echo everything you've said. And I, I think the fact that it's an ever-changing field and that every week and every month is different and that we're continually learning more about exposures and the impact on people's health, um, I find really attractive and interesting and stimulating. Um, and I really enjoy unpicking the close interplay between an individual's health and their work and their, their environment. Um, so I, I really enjoy it on a sort of a medical level on a day-to-day -day basis. May I ask a, a question to you both? And it was really interesting, I think, for your for the listeners as well. Is you mentioned gender, different gender balance in in the workforce now? How how does that affect things? I think the the issue is that most work historically has been designed with men in mind. So, with regard to the protective measures that are in place, the personal protective equipment, the work arrangements. These are all designed with men in mind. And with the increasing change in the world of work, these become major areas where one needs to review and refocus you know, the working arrangements. And the other important aspect relates to the gender distribution of work, where one would find that women uh, are employed predominantly in certain kind of industries and men in perhaps the more physically intensive industries. But increasingly, women are also occupying and playing a big role in these industries, including the dusty industries with very little protection. And so, again, this becomes a, an important area where one needs to tr work towards improving the work environment such that it's healthy and safe for both men and women to work in. Thank you. And with gender currently, do you feel that one gender is more prone to developing um, an occupational lung disease or allergy in relation to their occupation? I'm not aware of any um, differences in gender in susceptibility to particular diseases. I think it's much more related to the exposures that, so the industries that people work in, the exposures within that workplace and the availability of exposure control like respiratory protective equipment, as Mohammed said, um, rather than it being a pure gender issue. I know certainly things like um, cleaning industries we're seeing uh, are often dominated by women. Um, so we tend to see um, a large number of female cleaners reporting respiratory symptoms. But equally, that, that happens with male cleaners. It's just that there are more female cleaners in the workforce at the moment in the UK. No, that's perfect. Thank you. Thank you both. And sort of going on to the different chapters in this edition of the monograph, if you could read only one chapter, which one would you recommend? Sheila, that's a really hard question because they're all excellent, but I would say that. Um, I would just like to point out the, the chapter that Mohammed wrote, which is the first chapter, and really sets the scene about the global burden of occupational lung disease. It's well worth a read and a reminder that in this rapidly industrialising world, the hazards of work are increasing and are often unregulated and responsible for a huge number of disease um, cases of disease. But there are also chapters um, on silicosis and silica-related lung disorders and coal mine dust disease, which are conditions that we thought had gone away, um, but are now causing more and more of a problem in certain countries. And there are two excellent chapters on the environment, so one on indoor air and one on outdoor air. 
The chapter on indoor air provides an approach to tackling the tricky topic of indoor air exposures that we are seeing, particularly in certain populations. Um, for example, air conditioning and respiratory symptoms and possible uh, conditions like sick building syndrome. And in the outdoor air pollution, I'm sorry, in the outdoor air chapter, in addition to the usual suspects, so oxides of nitrogen, etc., they talk about the role of allergens in the air and that we ought to start thinking about biological material in the air uh, with respect to asthma exacerbations, etc. So that's just a handful. That's a good list for us to get going with. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) As you know, given that I've trained in Manchester, I've had some really wonderful mentoring in the field of occupational lung disease. But I wonder, is the burden of occupational lung disease different in the different countries, i.e. due to different manufacturing, productions and what do we need to think about when we are reviewing these patients? It would be lovely, obviously, to have both of your perspectives on this. Yes, of course. I think that, uh, you know, as Johanna mentioned earlier, uh, the the world of work is changing. Exposures are changing. There are certain exposures that appear to, to come and go, and there are others that are, that are new. And so... The burden of occupational lung disease varies geographically across the world. And in our part of the world, in developing countries, where there's still a lot of mining and quarrying and dusty jobs uh, that workers are engaged in, we still see the traditional, the well-known diseases of the pneumoconiosis, as you mentioned in your introduction, silicosis, asbestosis, coal workers' pneumoconiosis, and so on. And this is the result of uh, the lack of access to adequate controls, as well as uh, increasing deregulation of uh, some of the dusty industries. And with that goes inadequate control measures. And then perhaps up north, one would find that there's a much higher incidence of lung cancer, as well as uh, in occupational asthma and other forms of work-related asthma. This kind of typifies the fact that uh, these production processes are are vary across the world. A very other other very important uh, entity that uh, we speak about is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is prevalent in both high-income countries as well as low-middle-income countries. And uh, and it's interesting to note that in low-middle-income countries, indoor biomass fuel um, is responsible for for uh, a lot of the COPD uh, that is uh, experienced despite the decline in smoking over time. Joanna, uh, how would you approach this? Yeah, thanks, Mohammed. I would entirely agree. It depends on your local industry and there will be variability within a country over time, depending on the work being done. And I would just add that it's not always the case that richer countries are better at control measures, um, and that is certainly not the case. But I think when you're seeing a patient in clinic, rather than having a long list of questions to ask patients about, I think it's really important to start with the basics. And I think that doctors are notoriously bad at asking questions about people's jobs and at really finding out what they do. So they might know that they're a baker, but they may not know what they're exposed to or what kind of environment they work in. Um, Or they may know that they work as an engineer, but they might not ask about exposure to to things like metalworking fluid 
fluids and they may not have that understanding that metalworking fluids are an important cause of hypersensitivity pneumonitis. So I think it's about having asking about what people do for a job um, and having an understanding of what jobs are associated with which occupational lung diseases. So I hope that's helpful. Could I just add also to mention that on a number of occasions we see uh, patients who long uh, left their jobs uh, and they present, for example, with mesothelioma or another form of pneumoconiosis. And it's very important to ask about previous exposures because a number of these lung diseases have a long latency period. And by the time the patient presents to you, they are no longer exposed, but uh, the disease has already been progressive over time and uh, they now present with clinical, um, uh, with symptoms that uh, that is uh, causing them to be evaluated further. So I think that's also an important aspect. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Comprehensive occupational history, past and present. Thank you both. I think that's incredibly helpful because it kind of touches on my next question, which was obviously when we a lot of us started medical school, occupation, as you've both alluded to, is something that we always ask, but we never really explore. I see that changing in some of the medical students that I'm privileged to spend time with. But do you feel that we're better at diagnosing occupational and environmental lung disease or not really? I think that we've got a continual challenge to raise awareness of these conditions and enthuse people to find out more about them. Um, And I think it's about having a a high index of suspicion when you see these patients in clinic that their occupation could be important. And I think there's evidence that these conditions get missed for all sorts of reasons. Um, We know that there's a long delay from onset of symptoms to referral for assessment for occupational asthma in patients with occupational asthma and that diagnosis is delayed with potentially worse outcomes. And we know that conditions um, such as sarcoidosis are uh, conditions such as silicosis are misdiagnosed as sarcoidosis for many, many years uh, without being uh, without having the link made between that patient and their job. So I think we've still got quite a long way to go, but hopefully this book will provide um, some information uh, for people and and contribute to that training and learning process. Absolutely. And it's interesting with the delay. So on average, what is the delay for for someone with occupational asthma um, before they're actually diagnosed as having occupational asthma? Is is there a rough estimate? I think it will really vary. What, depending sure. on where you are, but I think there is, there is a paper that said that there was um, around four years delay yeah. from uh, approaching the GP and being referred and diagnosed. Mohammed, I don't know if you've got any more data that you can... No, I think it's also dependent on the agent um, and also um, the age of the patient and, you know, other factors, for example, how symptomatic the individual is. And in our part of the world, uh, workers choose to continue working in their jobs despite them having symptoms for fear of losing their jobs. And so here you have another uh, critical role for the um, clinician is to be able to, um, to identify and make this diagnosis early on before there is a significant impact on uh, people's lungs and also to be able to counsel uh, 
workers and managers about ways to to reduce exposures so that people do not then lose their jobs as a result of you making a diagnosis. That brings me to one of the other questions where I was thinking about my experiences in in clinic when seeing patients affected by occupational lung disease. You've already mentioned it can be incredibly hard to impress the importance of changing their current work practice. So both of you, what effective, do you have effective strategies for helping patients with these exposures, especially when it comes towards the, the financial implications too? If I answer, if I take that question first, I think um, one thing to remember, I'm going to slightly dodge the question here, but one thing to remember is that these, these diseases are largely preventable. And it's unusual in respiratory disease to understand the etiology of a condition as well as we do occupational lung diseases, other than perhaps with, you know, the link with smoking um, and lung cancer and COPD. But the key is, is primary prevention. And so there really has to be a focus on that. I think when you're looking at a patient in clinic and advising them, really management is on a case-by-case basis. Um, and it can be easier when uh, a patient has an occupational health service um, and outcomes can be better, but only a small proportion of the global workforce um, has such access. So, it, you know, it depends on the severity of the disease. It depends on, well, it depends if you're talking about uh, conditions with short latency, such as um, occupational asthma and hypersensitivity pneumonitis, or conditions with long latency of disease. And I think it depends on how severe the disease is, how important it is for that person to continue working, how easy it is to, to implement changes in the workplace, etc. So, it, you know, it's a very difficult issue, but case by case basis. And, and I think uh, to add to that is one also needs to understand a little bit about the laws uh, that govern the workplace in terms of health and safety, uh, as well as um, workers' compensation aspects. These are important um, uh, instruments, both to effect modifications to the work environment or modifications to the job of the individual, and also to assist with tertiary rehabilitation in terms of workers' compensation to ensure that individuals who end up having to change their jobs still have a means of income and also could be reskilled to perform other jobs if if the current job is uh, deemed to be um, contributing towards further worsening uh, the particular lung problem. So I think there's a repertoire of uh, instruments uh, one could use. And the most important thing is to, to have uh, these at your hand. And then also to mention, um, in recent times, there are also other technologies available, for example, databases and algorithms uh, that can also assist in uh, helping to manage uh, workers when you encounter uh, the, these patients in your clinic. One thing I've always been very envious about some of the occupational lung disease consultants is the change that they can make by going into people's workplaces. Have both of you, obviously, with your, your long careers, have you, have you had opportunities? Are there certain situations that you remember very well where you've been able to make a positive change for workers? I think that is why I like occupational health. You know, I really enjoy doing this is that 
one could uh, move from the clinical individual patient to the group in the workplace. And I would argue that no, uh, uh, no diagnosis of an occupational disease and, um, in general, or more specifically occupational lung disease, is complete without visiting the work and understanding the work environment. And in our context, we've seen um, uh, epidemics of occupational asthma in spice workers or increasing number of workers with Baker's allergy and asthma presenting to our clinic. And we've been to the workplaces and we've managed to convince employers to um, institute better control measures. And in fact, we've done some really wonderful research in Baker's allergy and asthma, where we introduced uh, interventions and designed better control measures, including mixes for uh, making bread in, in supermarket bakeries. And we were able to demonstrate the effectiveness of these uh, better control measures and thereby getting better employer buy-in in terms of improving the work environment. So I think the opportunities are there. Uh, it does require one to have a good evidence base and to be persistent and also in there for the long haul in terms of working with employers and with workers in ways that could get the involvement to improve the workplace environment and thereby decreasing the risk for all workers in that particular workplace. Joe, do you have anything you'd like to add as well? I would agree entirely with Mohammed. I think you can gain so much by visiting workplaces. And a lot of the cases which have ended up for us going to visit a workplace have been because of clusters of cases. Um, so outbreaks of hypersensitivity pneumonitis, for example, where we could visit the workplace and really understand um, about the layout of the factory. Um, and find out where the cases were based within that factory so we could find out the location of the, the individuals who were affected and try and pull things together and work out what was actually driving that uh, those cases. And in, in this particular case, it was due to contaminated metal working fluids. But we also work very closely with other occupational lung disease specialists around the UK. And I was lucky enough to visit a high performance vehicle factory where it was manufactured, where, where I'd seen a case of occupational asthma, as had a colleague in another clinic. Um, and had we not been communicating, we wouldn't have put two and two together. And then we did a joint site visit and worked out that we had these two cases of occupational asthma. Um, and then worked with the company to instigate changes. And I think the thing that Mohammed said that's really important is that if you can introduce better control measures, that's for the benefit not only of uh, your particular patients, but for the rest of the workforce in that environment. Thank you both. That's really interesting. And coming to our final question, during training, we are always taught to ask about asbestos exposure. And I'm thinking to the future, what are the newer agents we should be thinking of and, and why? I think we, we need to be thinking about new as well as the old. And so going ahead in terms of the new day by day increasing number of, of, of new technologies and work processes are being introduced. It is well known that there are over 400 asthmogenic agents um, that have been listed and the numbers continue to increase with the in increasing uh, mechanization and of the manufacturing industry. We have a lot of food processing environments where a lot of additives are added to food products causing allergy and asthma. 
is the pharmaceutical industry with its growth and the introduction of various new chemicals that we've ne never encountered before. Joe mentioned the issue of cleaning agents and now in the context of COVID, widespread use of disinfectants is also another important introduction, as is in developing countries, the introduction of pesticides to control various pests uh, have also in, in agriculture and other settings important uh, agents. And, and I'm sure you've, you've probably heard of engineered ports that is used to make those beautiful tabletops in your kitchens and in your bathrooms. While those particular tabletops are made of engineered quartz, silica quartz, and they've been known to cause um, silicosis uh, in uh, uh, young workers with very fatal consequences. So yeah, these are some of the kind of agents that are predominant currently. Just to add to that, there are other new disease clusters that have been seen. So there was a cluster of lung fibrosis and emphysema in indium tin oxide workers in the growing manufacture of flat panel displays, so liquid crystal plasma screen displays for televisions and mobile phones. Um, so that was that was something that we weren't expect, expecting that was reported in the literature quite recently. Mohammed mentioned flavourings. So there was an outbreak of um, obliterative bronchiolitis in popcorn workers because diacetyl was used to flavour it. It's a butter flavour. It was used to flavour the popcorn and led to a cluster of cases. Um, and then there's, there's this issue of manufactured nanoparticles and the impact on respiratory health. And I think as yet that's completely unknown, but they are increasingly being used in all sorts of technology and, and it will be something to watch um, in the future. And just to say as well that asbestos hasn't gone away because of the long latency um, of the disease and the legacy from massive production over, over many years. In the UK, at least, asbestos-related cancers haven't yet peaked. So, you know, that's the case in the UK and elsewhere in, in other countries which have got continued use of asbestos. We will continue to see asbestos-related lung disease. This brings us to the end of the podcast and I'd, I'd like to say thank you again for this incredibly interesting conversation that we've essentially had. So thank you, Joe. Thank you, Mohammed. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Obviously, this has given us much to think about. Thank you again for providing us with such an informative monograph. This is Srila Ramdrug interviewing Johanna Fieri and Mohammed Jibe on the ERS monograph on occupational and environmental lung disease.